Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preacher's contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Godsplaining. I am today's host, Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, because I wrested the powers of headship away from Father <laughs> Jacob Bertrand Jancic, so I am in the lead today. Ha! Huh. Oh, by the way, I'm accompanied today by Father Jacob Bertrand mm. Jancic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hello, Father. Here I am. Hey there. How you doing? Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my pleasure to host you today on, on Godsplaining. Yeah. Uh, one Thanks. thing that's kind of fun about this episode is that Father Jacob Bertrand and I are both in Washington, D.C. at the House of Studies recording from opposite sides of the building. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. One day we'll get like a mixer and be able to sit in the same room. But this has been <laughs> happening for two years. So why it's not fi- broken, don't fix it. That's the saying, right? I don't know. Also, it, yeah, it's, no, it's great. It's great. This is awesome. So, yeah, here we are, both in D.C. So Father Gregory left, got the boot, and then we moved Father Patrick in. So just took a year to get another Godsplainer back in the house. That's right. Don't worry. First thing I did was throw out that extra long mattress, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For those Not who have really. never seen Father Gregory, he's, he's tall. He's the tallest of us. So there you have it. Mm. Well, one thing that's kind of nice, too, about this episode is that we've we've come to the end of the summer chaos, right? We did, did all these different kinds of things. You had a couple of cool trips. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about your summer. Yeah. Mostly out of um, out of Colorado this summer with Focus's summer projects. So that was cool. Um, so most of the summer in Colorado Springs, we had a bunch of camping trips and other other kind of adventures. So made our way, I made my way as far west as Utah and drove, I drove to Colorado and drove out to Utah for that trip. So my car got a lot of additional miles, but it was cool. Um, I don't love road trips, but I was with some fun people for all of the driving. So that was, that made it, that made it good. Um, yeah, that was, those were the big trips. My, my, there was a family wedding earlier in the summer. Father Patrick was actually at, my sister got married back in June. So came back East for that. And we came back East again for the, um, for uh the godsplaining retreat in july but that that was kind of it and now settled back here and uh father patrick is settled here and you were you were with summer projects not in colorado but in maine a bit so um you had that was part of your summer adventure besides moving to the house of study so uh same program different location so that's pretty cool yeah that was great i came home and i said to father jacob bertrand hey i'm outdoorsy now <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> he, la- he laughed. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't, mm-hmm. he wasn't sure that I believe, but I did climb Cadillac. That's my, you know, claim to uh, adventure. Um, yes. And it was he quite climbed treacherous. A mountain <laughs> called Cadillac, not a mountain in a Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lest you think that the latter sounds more like me. I did accomplish the former. We took the West, the West side down which like no one does because it's very treacherous, apparently a fact, which we realized about halfway down. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah, of course. So that part was very exciting. We also saw an otter on otter cliffs. I think that's hmm. a, you know, something poetic about that. It had a fish in its mouth. So that was kind of, that's a Great. big deal. Yeah, yeah. Very exciting. All the wildlife, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's really great. You're like a, um, I can't think of a name of somebody. Well, who are the people who went out to the wilderness in Massachusetts? The poets, um, Walt, someone, Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada. What were their names? You know who I'm talking about. I can't think <laughs> I of do. their names. I'm just, I, it's more fun to just kind of watch this happen though. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Yeah, if zero on the, I was thinking Walt Whitman, but Thoreau. he's from Thoreau, the Henry David You're Thoreau. Yep, thank you. Thoreau. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Trudeau yep. is fine. Yeah, close Trudeau. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> Trudeau. Father okay. Trudeau. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Now we've totally descended into let's chaos. Move on. It's, time, yep. it's time to start the episode. Um, so today we want to talk about uh, the traditional elements of uh, the mass that's known as the Novus Ordo or the mass of Paul VI. Um, so we're talking about the mass as most people experience it in their Catholic parishes. So this mass was promulgated um, and uh, after the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, so 1972 and onward. Um, so Father Jacob Bertram, why don't you talk about some of the main differences between this mass and the mass as it was celebrated prior to the reforms of the Second Vatican Council? Um, yeah, just say a little bit of, uh, about the general experience. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, and I guess just to kind of give a little context too, we, uh, one of the things we're taught in our preaching classes is never to talk about the preparation for the preaching when you start to preach. Like yesterday, I was thinking about this and came up with Muhammad, like just preach, um, but I'm going to break that rule. And that Father Patrick and I were batting around this idea of this episode earlier in the summer. And then the Holy Father came out with the motto proprio uh, in the summer. Now we're doing it after. So we're looking, we want, we still think it's worth talking about the, you know, the masses it's on people's mind. So um, I think comparing and talking about how we live the mass as it's the the center really of our prayer together as the church is super important. So good to continue the conversation. So if we're looking and just broadly speaking, because as Dominicans, we wouldn't even celebrate the form of the mass that this document that the Holy Father issued um, the, the the Dominican rite's not even mentioned in this document. So just talking about the old forms of the Mass um, versus the new form or the Novus Ordo, as Father Patrick explained, the, the form that most Catholics would experience. A couple of the big things uh, that people would notice would, especially from the pews, I mean, there would be bigger differences that perhaps a priest who celebrate would notice, but especially from the pews, I think the two big things, and I'll, I'll lump a third in there, but the two big things would be the language, um, The Novus Ordo, in the new form of the Mass, there's permission given in the church documents to celebrate the Mass in what's called the vernacular, or the the spoken language of of the people in the given area. Um, So in the old form, it's only in the Mass is only celebrated in Latin. Latin. Everything, the readings, the prayers, all of that, the chant, the music, it's all in Latin. Um, In the new form, there is permission to celebrate in the vernacular. the other big thing is is the orientation of the priest. Um, so uh, in the old form, the priest always faces faces ad orientem or the proper or, or to the orient to the the proper orientation to towards the east. Churches would have typically been built with the sacristy. If you were standing in the pews, looking into the sacristy, into the sorry, into the sanctuary, not the sacristy, into the sanctuary, uh, you'd be you'd be looking east at the rising sun which symbolized Christ and the resurrection. Um, so the priest would be facing the same way as the people. In the Novus Ordo, there was uh, a recommendation and instruction that altars should be or could be moved away from the wall so that, that the Mass could be celebrated uh, versus populum or towards the people, so facing the people. And that's uh, growing up for me, of course, that, that was always my experience of the Mass in English and uh, with the priest facing the people. Um, so those are the two big, immediate kind of like, whoa, big changes going on. Um, the other thing that we'll, we'll talk a bit more about, but the third thing in this list that I, that I started out on is, is the way by which music is done. So big, there, there were, I mean, things changed gradually over time in the 20th, 20th century, but a big shift from chant, um, Gregorian chant to more hymnody and at its worst, um, kind of like, uh, 
uh, I don't know, folk music in the mass, uh, but a big, a big shift towards hymnody and, and congregational singing of the parts of the mass. That's not a bad thing, but, uh, that would be the third thing. I don't know. You might have a few more, um, and there certainly are more things, but those are the big three, I think, noticeable things that we, as we would, you know, experience attending, you know, if we, I wasn't alive when the, in the sixties, when this change was made, but if we were there, uh, those would be the big three on my mind. One of the things that we constantly go back to, and I, I think it's worth saying now, as we begin this reflection is, um, so many of these changes were just promulgated and they mm -hmm. just happened. Um, so mm -hmm. one, one thing that I brought up to Father Jake Bertrand as we were talking about this um, was that the, our experience of the change of the mass was very carefully crafted. Um, so for example, when the new translation was uh, promulgated, so the, the new translation of the mass in English, we went to lots of training sessions. There was all kind of information. And for years, when you walked into a church, you'd find pew cards. Uh, with the, with the new responses, so most people remember the changes um, affecting them because now instead of saying and also with you, we say and with your spirit, right? Um, but uh, the, we went to training sessions. It was a very long process of integration. People knew it was coming. They had some sense of what to expect. There were publications of different parts beforehand. Parishes had sessions about it. Um, but the but what's often told to us is that the changes after the Second Vatican Council were nothing like that. They were just sweeping. And suddenly these elements of tradition that were, that were very important um, to many were, were, were modified in ways that were surprising. Um, and I think in ways that are still impacting the church. So that's part of why we wanna talk about these three traditions in particular to see um, how they can continue to influence the life of the church now and, and to, see, uh, to see the connection between uh, the old mass, uh, the Tridentine Rite mass, uh, the old Latin mass, and the mass as it's presently celebrated. I don't know if you wanted to say anything else to that effect. Yeah, no, just kind of an anecdote. I remember, I think it was on when we were novices, we were visiting one of our parishes where our novitiate wasn't, and the pastor at the time was sort of doing, um, I think he's still the pastor, was was doing some renovations in the church, um, some actually pretty cool stuff. And one of the things that they were doing was they had installed a sort of mosaic in the floor of the sanctuary in uh, in marble um, with the Dominican shield or of the Dominican shield on the floor. And what they had done is that that mo that marble that they used to make that shield was the marble that um, that had made up the old communion rail in the church. And what had happened is that, you know, kind of overnight, um, the communion rail was smashed and thrown away. So one Sunday it was there, the next it was gone. People just came in their church, looked totally different with no sort of instruction, no explanation as to why. And parishioners found pieces of the marble and kept it. Um, and then when this, uh, when the pastor found out this was the case and they could re, um, you know, kind of repurposing the sanctuary and, and making it really quite beautiful again, they used that marble that couldn't be reconstructed into the rail, uh, but into the mosaic. So to sort of, you know, obviously it's not the same thing, but just an anecdote to see, to illustrate how Father Patrick was saying that there, it was just kind of overnight sweeping reforms of the liturgy. And though those reforms may have been well-intentioned, they were certainly not well, um, they did not come, they were not accompanied by well, good catechesis and that sort of thing. So it was kind of something that swept uh, in, in unhelpful ways. Yeah, so to that end, let's jump into the first of these, um, the orientation of the Mass. I mean, one thing that I think is important to note um, is that the Roman Missal still gives the instructions as if the priest 
were celebrating mass ad orientum, that is facing the east. Um, and I, I want to say a couple things about that. First, um, the, the point of language, uh, sometimes people say, oh, you mean the priest with his back to the people? Well, that's in, in my mind, actually a very loaded and a very divisive way to say that. Um, and that, that conveys a certain ideology of, of what the mass is. I think it's better to describe it objectively and to say uh, things like the language Father Jacob Bertram is using, that the priest is facing the East, because that is in fact the, that is in fact the liturgical custom, that is the tradition that everyone would face the same direction praying. Um, I think another thing that's important to see about this is because uh, when we pray the mass in this direction, we have an understanding that the priest is a mediator. So uh, according to the Catholic Church, we believe that the priest stands in persona Christi Capitis, that he is there in the person of Christ the head. And by his configuration through holy orders, the priest can do things in the name of Christ in a special way. And one of those is to communicate the graces of God to the people of God. And when, when everyone is facing the same way, there's a stronger sense of this kind of chain, this movement, um, that the priest is not doing something himself, but rather the priest is standing between God and God's people. And I, I, I think that, I think those two, those two things are very important. They're not just linguistic, mm -hmm. but they, they convey theological principles. Um, yeah. I, th I think Father Mike Schmitz, I think it was him, and I think it might have been at a, uh, a focus conference, either Seek or SLS a few years ago. I'm sure you could find this on, on YouTube if you look, but he gave a, uh, a talk on, on the Mass, and this point came up, and what he, you know, about the priest's posture, the way he's facing during the Mass. Um, and what he said and the way he described it, and I thought, oh, that's a, that's a way to think about it, is that, you know, the priest as mediator, as Father Patrick was explaining, is facing God with the people and saying to the people as the mediator, um, come with me, come like, come with me up the mountain, come with me to meet the Lord. And what mm -hmm. I, what is um, really, uh, what that, what that point brings out is the fact that as priests, Father Patrick, myself, other, all, all priests, we're, we're not some sort of, our, our priesthood exists within the church. Um, you know, we're, we're called to be, be, be priests, but we're first Christians, you know, and we're called out of the Christian people to serve the Christian people. So even the sacrifice of the mass, like the graces of the mass, I mean, they still, God willing, sanctify us and the graces of the Eucharist. And um, we aren't, we, we are set aside in a way to mediate, but also to mediate with and as part of the mystical body. So doing that together as a priest, at least in my experience, um, is really uh, spiritually edifying to have, that, to have that opportunity and to be able, to, be able to, to, to worship with the people in the same way. And the other thing too, as Father Patrick mentioned, is that the germ, the general instruction, it's kind of a terrible name, the germ. It's called the general instruction of the Roman <laughs> Missal. It's yeah, a, like, acronym. I just say it, it's a bad <laughs> acronym, yeah. Um, but it gives instruction as to when the priest should turn and face the people. And what that does is, as he was saying, as Father was saying, is that, well, there's a presumption that he's at times not facing the people. But if you were to listen to the prayers that the priest prays at Mass, he prays to specific people during the Mass. There are times when he prays to God or the, one of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. And then there are times when he prays with or for the people. And it's those times that he ought to face the people. And there are times when it makes sense, like facing God when you're talking to God makes sense with the people. So there's a kind of a, there's at, at least I think the point that we're trying to make is that there is twofold, that there's a, there's a sort of intelligibility as to why it would make sense to consider having the priest at, you know, face east, face in a particular direction. 
Um, there's all, it also makes sense um, as to why the priest would turn um, to talk to the laity, to the, to the people in the pews at certain times. But then really what I think specifically at this time in the church, in the church's liturgical life, to see that there's a continuity between the old rite and the new rite, that, there, that there's not a hard slash, that there really is kind of this rich tradition that it exists in, in both, in both forms of the mass. The last thing I'll say about this before we cut to our break and then get to these other two ideas uh, about the direction of the Mass is that when the priest is celebrating the Mass ad orientum, facing the East, it cuts back on the number of ways that he can add his own personality into the liturgy. And I think this is a good thing, because I think one of the difficulties of the Novus Order, one of the difficulties of Mass as we experience it, is that so much weight is being put on the priest to be uh, an engaging celebrant, to be a kind of entertainer of sorts. Um, and and that, that weight is heavy, it's hard to bear, and, and some priests don't carry it well. And so when the, when the, normative, when the normative mode is um, ad orientum, uh, there's a kind of, um, what's the right word here? There's a kind of uh, uh, uniformity to worship. Um, and a certain humility is put upon the priest because uh, I think by default, this mode of celebrating uh, this orientation uh, allows the priest to be more humble. Um, so with that, let's, uh, let's take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about music in the liturgy. And then we're also going to talk about language in the liturgy. So stay tuned. You are listening to God's Planning. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. Well, friends, welcome back to Godsplaining. Thanks for sticking with us. If you make it to the second half of the episode, I always feel like you deserve an award because you could mm -hmm. cut and run after the first half. So. If you if you if you've made it this far, you know you're you're really in. Uh, you you must be very curious then about the use of language in the liturgy and the kind of mass <laughs> that you hear at mass. Uh, so let's let's turn to that first. Let's turn to that uh, that first of these two remaining points. Um, that sounds like something Aquinas would have written. Of the two things that remain, we tend to we you know we now turn to the first. Uh, That's great. The second yeah. the second half has two parts. Now to the first part of the second half. <laughs> How so well formed you've been in the Thomistic tradition. Yeah. Let's let's turn to the the importance of Latin, uh, even still in the liturgy. Father Jacob Bertrand, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, so there there's a real so I think with with the liturgy, um, maybe I should stop saying I think. That was one of my goals this summer to cut I think when I'm saying something that is like true out of my language and speech, and I haven't done it. So uh there is there is a document from the Second Vatican Council called Sacro Sanctum Concilium that if you're trying, if you're wondering where are these Dominicans getting these things, um, you can look that up and read it. And that's really where we're where we're pulling from. That was the document that issued in the changes largely on uh liturgical reform. And the document, Sacro Sanctum Concilium, um, is abundantly clear that Latin is to be preserved in, in the church's liturgy and the worship. Why? Um, just to say that it is, I mean, is it because God speaks Latin probably or French or something? I don't know. Uh, maybe some other language. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> is it that reason? That's probably Hebrew. not the reason. Yeah, Hebrew, Aramaic. That's probably not the reason the council fathers uh, thought that Latin ought to be preserved, but be, really because of its traditional place in our, in its universal place in the church. 
that that Latin has been used as the language of the church um, for centuries. And so there, there, it kind of becomes institutionalized and it also becomes globalized in that um, Latin is the language of the church. Uh, so that if you were worshiping in one part of the world or another, you would at least have familiarity with the mass and that sort of thing. Um, it reminds me very much, the argument for Latin reminds me very much of the argument for the creation of the Dominican Rite, the the, the traditional form of the Mass for us, mm. which was really just to um, just to have um, uniformity as the friars traveled throughout Europe, because each region had different variations of the Mass. So the Master of the Order at the time said, let's have one, so that as we travel, we can have uniformity. I think that argument holds for, for the use of Latin, too. Um, so the the document though says uh, that that Latin should be used uh, as the it should be preserved in in the Roman rite um, and it should there should be steps taken that the faithful may be able to say or sing together in Latin and I think that's really important that 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 goes back to the point that Father Patrick made earlier that we you know if there is to be a sort of holding on to or a re revitalization or reintroduction of Latin in in our worship. Um, does everything need to be in line? I don't think so. But does there need to be catechesis on on things? Do we need to be taught? Yes. Yes, we do. And actually, in the document, this is what in the document from Pope Francis is one of the things he recommends. Um, so that's I think that's important. But it's also I think we have to recognize that the that the Sacrosanctum Concilium recognizes that the vernacular is helpful. And one of the things that Father Patrick and I, when we talk about liturgical things, often harken back to is the is the change in the masses in the um, in the lectionary. So in the readings that we have. So one of the changes that came into the mass um, from uh, from from the old rite to the Novus Ordo to the new rite is is that the the readings were expanded. Uh, they were the cycle was expanded, so we get much more of the Bible throughout the year in the church, but we also get the readings in English. And I think that's a helpful thing if we're going to be preaching on the readings in English. And if there's not such uh, people don't understand the readings, it makes it much more difficult. So I think there's a there's a good reality in that, too. So I don't know if you have more thoughts about Latin and English or Latin in the vernacular if you're living elsewhere. But uh, some thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I, I think that knowing the at least the mass parts in Latin um, is a, is a way of deferring to the global and international nature of the church. I mean, I actually think in this case it's really helpful that Latin, um, the Latin is a dead language. So it, uh, I've heard of historical incident, incidents, for example, in Africa, where um, bishops not wanting to uh, default to one or another tribal language insisted that mass just had to be celebrated in Latin, even in the Novus Ordo. Um, and, and that and that Latin uh, is is not just a not just a a, a uniform or or uh, a particular standard, but that that it is actually the kind of thing that unites us together, because uh, because Latin by its nature is not spoken um, in any particular country. So it so it's a it's a kind of neutral territory, um, and and a place that doesn't favor one nation or race against another. And I, I think that's really important to think of in our age. And it's a beautiful thing to have that expression of faith um, when you go to a major pilgrim site in the Holy Land or in Europe, um, and you hear the prayers of the church prayed in Latin by all kinds of different people. I mean, it's really an extraordinary sign of the church's unity. Uh, so th that's yeah. just kind of a, a, a reframing, but or an echoing of some of the points Father Jacob Bertrand was making. Yeah, I think I think that kind of sums up my thoughts on it. I think you hit that right on right on the head. So even in uh, again, even in the even in the Novus Ordo, um, the mass of Paul VI or the mass subsequent to the reforms of 1970 
uh, Latin should, I think, have a, have a preeminent place in the liturgy that the faithful should be encouraged um, to learn the basic prayers of the church in Latin. You know, I've been saying the mass parts, and by that I'm referring to the Gloria, uh, the Sanctus, the Holy, 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 um, uh, and uh, perhaps even the Creed. Um, so uh, I could learn it in English first, and then I could... <laughs> and then I could learn it in Latin, but uh, but but I th I think there's a kind of baseline here that 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 is an invitation because when we learn these things in another language, we we're, we're invited to reflect on the meaning of the words and to re to reencounter them. So I think it has that kind of spiritual benefit for someone who's taking on that project too. Okay, so with that, let's turn to a, to our last uh, our, our last point of reflection on the liturgy um, music. Um, Father Jacob Bertrand, you want to narrate a, a little bit. Um, and the situation of church music. Yeah. And referring again to the same, same document, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, for, for notes on, on how music ought to inform our liturgical worship in the mass, um, and the liturgy at large, really. Um, so, uh, one of the things, um, one of the things with music that I think, uh, we have to recognize is, is that singing in the mass, um, it's a dispositive reality um, in, in as much as it makes us better worshipers and more receptive to to receive the grace that's being offered. And this is this is if you think about the way that we worship as Catholics, this is how so many of the pieces of our liturgical worship work from our body positions of standing, kneeling, sitting uh, from the stained glass windows, from the smells and bells, as it were, you know, the incense and the sounds and the, the way the priest moves and the way the altars, all of that is is meant to help us, aid us in our worship. So to music. So I think that's really important in thinking, okay, I think that is really important <laughs> in, thinking, in thinking about the way in which music is approached. Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document again that reformed the liturgy, um, says this about chant. The church acknowledges Gregorian chant as, special, as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. Hmm. Okay, so that's that's full stop. That's the the music of the church is Gregorian chant. Um, you can't have it any other way. Uh, that's just simply what it is. Now, can you incorporate other things? Hymns, sure. Can you incorporate other types of music? Yeah, you can. The document also says that polyphony, or like if you think sacred harmonized music. Um, other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from liturgical celebration so long as they accord with the spirit of the liturgical action. Um, and then regarding instruments, the document says that it is the organ, the pipe organ, that is held in, quote, high esteem um, and should be used uh, for 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 worship. Other instruments can be used. They may be admitted. Um, not really, you know, not the highest. So. Why though? Why is chant and then polyphony less so than chant? Why is polyph chant so important to our worship? Well, because because chant above everything else, above any other form of music, is text based. It is focused on the word, namely the word of scripture, and the chant that we chant, uh, the things that we sing um, in in the context of mass ought to draw us into Christ, who is the word. So when chant is, is sung, um, it, is, it is easier to understand the word, what is being said. It is less distracted by music and, and harmonies and, um, you know, how polyphony has the, the, all the different kind of movements at once in, in there. Um, but it helps us understand the word better. 
there's also a reality, and perhaps we won't spend as much time talking about this, um, but the sacredness, the otherness of worship, um, as as liturgical music gets closer and closer to secular music, it becomes less and less sacred and more and more secular. Um, and what happens in a church ought to not reflect the profane, but the the sacred. Um, so there's something to be said for having a sort of music, a type of music that is reserved for liturgical worship, for the worship of God that isn't also played on the radio or at a party or like, you know, those kind of things. Um, or sounds like things that are played on the radio or at a party. There should be some otherness uh, that draws us into the mystery of, of liturgical worship. I think if our listeners want a, a real kind of wild visual of this, the kind of the kind of thing we're talking about, and, the, and the, to to really see the way the Second Vatican Council changed uh, music in the church, they should look up Elvis Presley and Mary Tyler Moore's 1969 classic American film, Change of Habit. At the end of the film, you can find this on YouTube. At the end of the film, there's this wild scene where uh, the the mass is still being celebrated as a as a traditional mass. So the priest is facing ad orientum, and there's Latin in the liturgy, and things are, things are pretty solemn, with the exception of Elvis Presley standing in the sanctuary with a guitar. It's a it's a pretty wild contrast, and certainly offers some food for thought about the nature of music and the liturgy and the way the changes may or may not have been adapted. It would have been it's fine a, if you were in the choir loft. I mean, that would, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty wild scene. Um, as regards music, I mean, uh, the the church invites and calls for enculturation. We know that the church, um, because of the nature of the gospel of Jesus, adapts unto herself um, the traditions of every nation. Uh, and not only does she do that, she she seizes these traditions, uh, but she cleanses and purifies them in the light of the gospel. Um, so there's a there's a a tension here to be brought about and explored um, with the question of enculturation, liturgical music, and the the clear and evident um, preferences of the council. I think personally, in the United States, we're at a point where um, we should be animating efforts to teach chant and uh, singing of singing of traditional music because the the typical experience is not that. So that indicates that. That we're we're further on one side of this uh, this question than on another. Um, the teaching of chant, uh, I think, has a very um, therapeutic and peaceful effect. I mean, people when they can't sleep, they turn on CDs of Gregorian chant. And I think in a, in a in an age when the liturgy should be solemn and reflective and should invite people to peace and to pray to a kind of Sunday repose. Uh, that, that that element um, is important and is really beneficial. Um, so, Father Jacob Bertrand, do you have any closing remarks on these three uh, these three elements of the Mass? Like, what's our uh, what are our, what are our action steps? What are we to do going forward? What do we want yeah. here is to understand is important. Yeah, I think the the a couple two like two important points, and then a couple of wrap up thoughts super quick though one is that the 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 reason we're bringing these things up is to is is to show is to to shed light on the continuity of the church's liturgy throughout um throughout especially the 20th century now have there been abuses and sort of crazy things that have disrupted that continuity yes but did the church envision that no um so if you haven't if you're interested in liturgical things in the mass and you haven't read this document sacro sanctum concilium it's not terribly long it might be worth doing that. The USCCB, the U.S. Conference of Bishops, also has documents on the liturgy. Those things are helpful just to get a sense of like, okay, what does the church say and what does she provide for our worship? Um, 
the other thing, the other point here is the importance of catechesis that we've come back to a couple of times. As Father Patrick said, you know, just throwing chant or throwing, you know, this or that at a congregation, it just really is a repeat of what happened 60 years ago after the council of just throwing things out and that kind of thing. And we can't, we can't abide that. We can't do that. And we're not called to do that. We're called to learn and to learn about our Lord in the way by which we are to worship him better so as to enter into that better. And if we, if we miss that point, then then we're just, you know, we're, we're making the same mistakes. History is going to repeat itself. And that's, that's a dangerous territory. So I guess the last thing that I'll say is like, you know, what can we say and what can't we say? Well, with respect to the orientation of the priest, uh, language, Latin, or the vernacular music, what we can say is that all of these can be used and should be used properly in the mass. And in fact, we should be disposed to use them. That doesn't mean that every single Mass has to only have Gregorian chant. That's not what we're saying. But it's it's an invitation to dive into the rich tradition of our church's liturgical worship, whether in the traditional rite or in the Novus Ordo. What we can't say is that we can't be using these things or we shouldn't be using these things because the church doesn't say that. Um, so it's an invitation, again, to learn, to pray different, to pray better, to dive more deeply into our, our tradition and, and come to know our Lord in, in new and bigger ways. Mic drop. <laughs> by, way, by way of conclusion, I just want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners. Um, if you like this episode, please share it on social media. Give it to someone in your parish who thinks could benefit from listening to us, uh, that you think that they could benefit from listening to us. That was almost a coherent thought. I need more coffee, gosh. Um, please uh, consider donating to the podcast. We appreciate uh, the gifts, the regular gifts of our Patreon supporters. Um, as you've noticed, we've been hosting on Friday afternoons live splaining episodes. Those have been really dynamic and very well received. We want to thank you if you've participated in those. If you haven't yet, check them out uh, every other Friday at 3 p.m. on the YouTubes, that popular source of entertainment on the interwebs. Uh, we get together and talk about your questions. So if you listen to this episode and thought that was really interesting to me, well, on a live splaining, yeah, we could talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, finally, uh, check out our merch. Uh, God's Planning has a store. Uh, we have kidney packs. Oh, I mean, fanny packs. Uh, Father Jacob Richard's a huge fan. He wears his around all the time. Pulls his phone in one. and out of it. Yeah. I don't wear it all the time, but I have one. It's his, it's it's cool. his hiking pouch, his mm -hmm. woodsman apparel. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, but check out the merch. Uh, support us that way and show your God's planning pride. Um, great. Please know of our gratitude to you for supporting us. Uh, and uh, as always, be assured of our prayers. God bless. Thanks for listening to God's planning, a work of the Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.